This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, casual ableism, body horror, misogyny, and depictions of human enslavement. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 301. Hello, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 42 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Danny Shirabi has been confined to Artax's Sanctuary, a magic rehab facility for victims and perpetrators of mind control. Artax, Sasha, and Rebecca are looking for a way to free her from the psychic conditioning that was unwittingly imposed on her by Jared Tamlin, a latent telepath with the power to reshape people's souls. Danny was initially furious at being taken away from Jared, and dismissed their worries about him as paranoid delusions. When she had calmed down, though, she was visited in her cell by Sasha, who is a psychologist by training. Sasha gently helped Danny to see that she had stripped away every part of her identity that wasn't connected to Jared, including completely suppressing her male alter ego, Daniel. That isn't healthy, whether it was caused by psychic soul-shaping or not, and as her friends, Sasha and Rebecca are worried about her. Reluctantly, Danny admitted that Sasha might have a point, but damn it, she was happy for the first time in years, and that's a hard thing to give up. Eventually, she decided that she needed to talk to Evan and Ava Salindi, the androgyne who first inspired her to take the Curse of Metamore. If anyone can help her make sense of the confusion around her split identity, it's Salindi. Sasha agreed to get in touch with them and ask them to come visit. While Danny was wrestling with her inner demons, Miriam Bakhtivar was confronting monsters of a more external variety. The Elder was waylaid on a late-night subway train by a pack of vampire thugs, led by Malcolm Sion, Braddock. Miriam fought her way to the front of the train and managed to uncouple the cars behind her, cutting herself off from Braddock's gang. Just when she thought she had made a clean getaway, though, Braddock himself smashed in the windows and entered the train car from the roof. Not hesitating for an instant, Miriam leapt from the moving train, hurting herself badly on impact. She regenerated enough to get up and keep moving again, but in the low-pressure atmosphere of the Maglev tunnels, 
Miriam's body and brain were starved for oxygen. She had just made it to the nearest airlock when Braddock caught up with her, throwing her roughly to the ground again. As her vision went dark, she heard the vampire's voice in her ear. Damn, you look like you're in pretty bad shape there, Miriam. But don't worry, I'll make it all better. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 42 The bolts on the door slid open. Danny set down her pencil and turned to face the entrance as Ava slipped inside. The androgyne rushed to Danny's side immediately, worry etched on her face. Gods, Danny, are you all right? When Sasha told us you were at Artex's place, I never imagined something like this. Ava put her hand on Danny's shoulder, offering an embrace. Danny accepted. As she wrapped her arms around the other woman, she whispered, Thanks for coming, Ava. I needed to talk to someone who understands what it's like. Of course, of course, Ava soothed, running her hand over Danny's hair in a comforting gesture. You know that all you had to do is ask. They sat down on the edge of the bed together. Ava pulled out a handkerchief and dabbed at the tears running down Danny's face. In earnest, my dear, are you all right? I can't believe they have you just locked up in here. Danny sighed. I'm holding up okay, considering. Try not to get too angry with them, okay? I know it looks bad, but they're doing this because they care about me. She looked over at her notepad. The list she'd been working on, who I am when I'm not with Jared, was still disturbingly sparse. Besides, she added in a low voice, it's possible that my judgment has been a little... biased lately. Ava put an arm around her in a sideways hug. Oh, transition been hitting you hard, has it? Danny laughed bitterly. That's the understatement of the year. Ava fell silent for a moment. At last, she said, I'm sorry. I've made a real hash of things, haven't I? Danny frowned. What do you mean? Well, it's my fault you're in this, Fex, isn't it? I'm the genius who suggested you should take the curse. She lowered her head. I thought I was helping you, but I think it just bullocks things up even worse. This isn't your fault, Ava. You gave me the idea, but it was meeting Jared that convinced me to go through with it. Danny reached out and touched Ava's chin, gently urging her to look up. She did, and Danny gave her a little half-smile. Besides, if you hadn't suggested it, I wouldn't even exist. So I'm actually kind of grateful. Ava returned the smile, though her eyes still mirrored the sadness that Danny felt herself. Tell me how I can help, she said. I need your input. Ever since Daniel and I split into two people, we've been at each other's throats. Metaphorically, anyway, she added, off Ava's astonished look. Daniel and I have different needs. We want different things. 
I need you to teach me how to live with him. How to compromise, find balance. Ava looked into her eyes for a long moment. Just so we're clear, she said slowly, you're saying that you actually perceive of Daniel as a separate person, not just a different filter over your perceptions, an alter ego with a different way of looking at the world, but an actual separate personality? Danny nodded. Pretty much, yeah. Eva took Danny's hand and squeezed it. Maybe you'd better start at the beginning. An hour later, Ava walked out of Danny's cell and into the observation room, shifting back to Evan as she did so. You have a problem, he said. Just one? Sasha murmured. That's an improvement. What's wrong? Rebecca asked, in a tone that was not quite bordering on panic, but indicated she was ready to make the trip. Evan gestured over his shoulder. That is the most bifurcated first-gen I have ever seen. Rebecca blinked. Evan sighed. <sighs> Look, normally a first-gen androgyne has only the faintest notion that there's any real difference between himself and herself. The differences in thought and behavior are all subconscious. Which obviously isn't the case with Daniel and Danny, Sasha said. Exactly. It takes several generations for the cursed alter a family's genetics to the point that they display this sort of independent parallel processing. I've seen sixth-generation androgynes who are less double-minded than Daniel and Danny. Not only do they perceive of themselves as separate people, but their desires are divergent enough that they're actually fighting each other. Do you think that's because of Jared? Rebecca asked. Evan snorted and threw up his hands. I don't know what else it could be. I've never seen anything like this before. He paused. Well, actually, that's not true. I have seen one androgyne who took the curse at adulthood and had similar troubles adjusting. He smiled humorlessly. Poor Sod was an orphan, grew up on the street. Turns out he was a fifth gen and didn't realize it. Sasha winced. Ouch. What happened to him? Had to be institutionalized. Physically speaking, his brain was prepared for the parallel processing, but emotionally he couldn't cope with the sudden split in his psyche. What? Rebecca gasped. Evan sighed again, and sat down on the corner of the desk next to the computer monitors. Imagine if you had a twin brother who suddenly woke from a twenty-year coma, with no memory of his life prior to that moment. He's a fully independent, fully conscious person, but he has no context, no sense of place or identity. Even if you could give him access to all of your memories, that wouldn't tell him who he is. Your memories are too deeply rooted in your own self-image, and your identity is a woman. Most hygiens take the curse soon after birth, so they have a lifetime of memories for both of their personalities. The first gens who take the curse later in life have to do some adjusting, but they usually just think of themselves as one person with two bodies. The differentiation between their male and female sides is subtle, and it takes years to fully manifest. So Danny has the worst of both worlds, Sasha said, a high gen split personality with a low gens inexperience. Exactly. And that makes her unstable, 
Danny doesn't know how to be Danny, and Daniel's memories are too different for her to embrace them as hers. Ironically, she was actually doing better before she realized Daniel was still inside her. She could tell herself that he was her old self, and she'd just been reborn as someone new. He grimaced. Now that she knows Daniel is still in there, she feels like those memories belong to him, which leaves her feeling like she has nothing. Except Jared, Rebecca murmured. Except Jared, Evan agreed. Rebecca wrung her hands and looked over at Artax, who had been listening quietly in the back corner of the room. Can we fix this? Can we give Danny something that would, I don't know, stabilize her? Help her feel more like a complete person? Or maybe reintegrate her with Daniel? Sasha added. Artax stroked his beard thoughtfully. It might be possible to do both. Sasha, the Collective has psi-therapists who can reconstruct the minds of the insane, do they not? Sasha nodded. Yeah, we do. It's a really specialized field of telepathy. Very delicate, very tricky. I've still got seven years of training left before they'll let me tackle something like that. No offense, my dear, but I find that rather comforting, Artax said dryly. You're far too young to be rebuilding someone's mind from the ground up. Nevertheless, you must know people who are qualified to perform that sort of work. Sure, Sasha agreed. You think we could do something like that for Danny? But Danny isn't crazy, Rebecca protested. Not crazy-crazy, anyway. If I get what you're saying, Evan, the problem is that she feels like she doesn't have a past. And she really doesn't. True, but your therapists may be able to mend that, Artax said. What if you could give Danny a past, a set of memories that could stand alongside Daniel's? What if you could give her a childhood, an adolescence, a history of choices and decisions that would help her to understand herself? That could work, Sasha said slowly. We could psychically regress her to earlier ages and let her role-play through a bunch of VR scenarios— without access to Daniel's memories. She'd basically be building up an abridged version of her life, with the chance to make her own choices and develop her own identity. But it wouldn't be real, Rebecca said. You'd be giving her a bunch of memories of things that never happened. Yeah, but her choices would be real. Life is less about what happens to you than how you respond to it. After we brought her out of the scenario, she'd know that the memories were fictional— but the decisions she made would tell her something real about herself. And if you made those life experiences similar to Daniel's, it would actually bring their two sides closer together, Artax said. Danny would be able to compare her version of events to Daniel's, and the similarities and differences would help them to understand each other. Do you think that will fix what Jared did to her? Rebecca asked. It certainly can't hurt. Daniel's soul remembers things about who they are that Danny's soul forgot under Jared's influence. The more we can bring them together, the more Daniel's soul will be able to help reverse that damage. Like fixing a strand of damaged DNA by using the sister strand as a template, Sasha said. Rebecca smiled. Daniel would like that analogy. Sasha looked up at Evan. You see any potential problems with this? Evan shrugged, looking uncomfortable. I'm afraid psychotherapy is outside my realm of expertise. It sounds good when you say it, 
but it also sounds terribly time-consuming. He gave an apologetic smile. And it means trusting the collective, which is something neither Daniel nor Danny has been very keen on. Yeah, well, they're in good company, Sasha said sourly. But I know the therapists who do this stuff, and I think we can trust them. Good enough for me, Rebecca said, levering herself out of the chair. Let's go tell Danny and see what she thinks. Danny listened intently as Sasha outlined the plan. While she was calm on the surface, Rebecca could sense her mixed emotions about the whole idea, as well as the increased feelings of self-doubt that gnawed at her mind. Rebecca sat on the edge of the bed, close enough to take Danny's hand if she offered it, but far enough away to avoid crowding her. When Sasha finished, Danny sat back in her chair and folded her hands, her eyes going distant. How well do you know the shrinks who would be doing the therapy? she asked. Sasha shrugged. I've known all of them for at least a year. Longer for the ones who trained me when I was in MID. If I ever went crazy, I'd trust them to bring me back. Danny nodded. Do we have any other options? Not yet, Sasha admitted. But if you aren't comfortable with the idea, our tax is willing to keep looking for other possibilities. But I'd have to stay here, Danny said. Sasha grimaced. I'm afraid so. It's the only way to keep both of you safe until you get this sorted out between you. Danny sighed and lowered her head. Look, it's really late, and I need some time to think about this. Take all the time you need, Sasha said gently. Becca will come by tomorrow to check on you. If you need me for anything, just tell her or Artax and they'll send for me right away. All right. Danny hesitated, then looked up at each of them in turn. It feels strange to be saying this, but thank you. You forced me to face some things that I probably wouldn't have dealt with on my own. Sasha smiled. You're welcome. Go on and get some rest. I'll be back on Monday. She gave a quick bow, and Danny nodded in return. She slipped past Artax and out the door. Best of luck, Danny, Evans said gravely, raising a hand and parting. Call for me if you need anything. Danny got up and went over to him wrapping her arms around him in a tight hug. Thanks, Evan. Without you and Ava, I don't know how I would have gotten through any of this. Evan looked surprised at Danny's display of affection. For a moment, he went rigid, blushing as he exchanged a look with Rebecca over Danny's shoulder. Rebecca smiled, and Evan's posture softened. He wrapped his arms around Danny and ran a hand gently over her wavy black hair. It was an oddly paternal gesture, but Danny seemed to appreciate it. You are most welcome, he said softly. He drew back from the embrace and touched her cheek. Take care of yourselves, all right? She laughed a little at that. All right. Talk to you soon, Evan. He gave her a half bow and walked out. Danny looked up at Artax, who was still holding the door open. She glanced over at Rebecca, then back at the wizard. Give us a minute, okay? And turn off the microphones. Artax met Rebecca's eyes for a moment, then nodded and shut the door. Danny turned to face her. 
They gazed at each other across the room for a long moment. I am a real grade-A class one bitch, Danny said. Rebecca blushed. Danny, it's okay. Danny shook her head firmly. No, it isn't. Those things I said to you before, they were totally uncalled for. And stupid. And cruel. She looked away. And they weren't even true. You didn't kill Daniel. I locked him away. Because he wasn't convenient. Rebecca stood up and went over to her, putting a hand on Danny's arm. You didn't know. You weren't trying to lock him away. It just happened. It wasn't your fault. It was Jared's, she thought bitterly, but she didn't say it. Danny flinched, and Rebecca wondered if she'd heard it anyway. No, but it's my fault that I said what I did, Danny said. I'm sorry, Bex. I thought... She sighed, sounding frustrated. I finally had things figured out, and then you were there making it all... complicated again. I thought that I needed to make a clean break with Daniel, with the person I used to be. I thought if I was... hard enough, cruel enough, that you'd stop chasing me. That you'd leave me alone so I wouldn't have to deal with how you made me feel. Rebecca swallowed back the lump that was growing in her throat. And how did I make you feel? Danny looked up at her then, her bright blue eyes earnest and full of regret. Like part of my life was missing. She reached up and touched Rebecca's hair. Maybe the most important part. For one long, dizzying moment, they looked at each other in silence. Then they were kissing, and they clung to each other like a drowning man clings to a life preserver, and Rebecca didn't know whether it had been her who started it or Danny. And then their minds opened up and wrapped around each other, and suddenly it didn't matter whose idea it was. I am so sorry, Danny's voice said in her mind. I forgive you, Rebecca said back. You came back for us. For both of us. I didn't expect that. I love you. All of you. You're two sides of the same person I fell in love with. Danny's mental voice was tinged with embarrassment and regret. I'm not that person anymore, Bex. Neither is Daniel. I know, Rebecca assured her. And I'm not the person I was when we first fell in love either. It's okay. It just means there's more for us to discover together. A surge of emotion ran through the link, and Rebecca felt tears on both of their faces. I don't know what I ever did to deserve you, Danny said. Rebecca clutched her even tighter and kissed her hard. You were yourself. That's all I ever asked of you. Danny broke the kiss and put her head over Rebecca's shoulder, crying softly. Rebecca felt Danny's knees starting to give way, and she guided her over to the bed before she lost her balance. They lay there, holding each other, while Danny let go of the burden that had been building up inside her. At last, the tears stopped flowing, and they just looked at each other again. Danny's hand found hers, and their fingers intertwined. The sensation was both strange and achingly familiar. Could this ever really work? 
Danny asked. She sounded hesitant and vulnerable. Would Brian and the others ever really accept me? Rebecca ran her thumb gently over Danny's. Well, I haven't gotten any visions about it. But yeah, I think they will. Danny looked down at the patch of bedspread between them. I was afraid, you know, to let myself hope. I started all this to see if I could really handle being with a man, to see if I could be Brian's wife, if that's what it took to be with you. Rebecca gaped, astonished. You did this for me? To be with me? Danny nodded glumly. Jared was supposed to be a... a test drive, I guess. To see if I could do it. She shrugged one shoulder. Then I started falling in love with him, and... it was easier, you know? He made me feel so happy, so alive. It was easier to forget about trying to be with you, and... just go with what I had. Rebecca reached up and touched Danny's shoulder then ran her fingertips over Danny's neck and down the line of her jaw. I understand. Then, after a moment, You still love him. I do, Danny said, her voice barely above a whisper. God's Bex, I was going to marry him. I still would. But it wouldn't be fair to Daniel. I know that now. She reached up and took Rebecca's hand again. And what Sasha said before, about how I don't know who I am when I'm not with him? She was right. Damn it all, but she was right. She shook her head. I just don't know if I'm ready to let my brain get reconstructed by a bunch of collective shrinks. I know. Rebecca squeezed her hand. Do you want me to stay tonight? For a moment, it looked as though Danny might say yes. But then she sighed and sat up. No. Ever since I changed, I've avoided being alone with myself. I'm starting to think that's because I didn't want to look too closely in the mirror. I've got some thinking to do. She smiled wryly. And if you're here, all I'll be thinking about is you. Rebecca returned the smile, and Danny helped her to her feet. All right, then. You do your thinking, and I'll come back with breakfast tomorrow. Then, if you're ready, we'll talk. Sounds good. Danny embraced her once more, briefly, and walked her to the door. Rebecca knocked, and a moment later Artax opened it. Good night, Bex. Sweet dreams, Danny. Rebecca stood on tiptoes and kissed her cheek, then stepped out into the hallway. Then the door swung shut, silencing the link between them. The sudden quiet was still jarring, but this time Rebecca felt the stirrings of hope. Maybe, she thought, it's all going to work out after all. Maybe everything's going to be all right. Monday, June 24th Miriam started awake like a woman being roused out of a nightmare. She bolted upright, gasping for breath, staring around wildly at her surroundings. Canopy bed, high ceilings, large windows with heavy shutters, antique furniture, master bedroom. Where am I? Her thoughts were disjointed. 
She remembered darkness and terror and pain. Pain from what? She couldn't remember, but she knew that it had touched every part of her body. That pain was completely gone now, replaced by a ravenous hunger. She felt like she hadn't eaten in a week. Her muscles were filled with a restless energy, a need to move, to get out. And yet, something's wrong. As an egoist, Miriam had an inhuman awareness of her own body. As her disorientation faded, she realized several things in quick succession. The urgent fight-or-flight response that filled her body was the sort of thing that was normally triggered by adrenaline. Her heart should be pounding, her arteries dilating to handle the increased flow. That wasn't happening. As a matter of fact, her heart wasn't beating at all. Panic kicked in, and Miriam reacted without thinking. She focused her psychometabolic power and channeled it into her heart, willing the recalcitrant muscle to pump, damn you! Pump as if your life depends on it, because it literally does! Her heart clenched and stuttered, seemingly unsure of itself, but at last it settled into a familiar rhythm. The quiet lub-dub was reassuring after the eerie silence of a moment before. Miriam looked down at her skin, which had turned an ashen gray, and watched as color slowly crept into it once more. Color, but not warmth. Though blood was flowing through her body again, her skin was as cold as plastic. She tried to channel more of her power into producing heat, commanding the trillions of mitochondria in her body to work faster at breaking down fuel into energy. There was no response. Miriam sat there in stunned silence. Her body still functioned on the broad scale. Her muscles still moved. Her eyes could see. Her stomach nodded in hunger. At the cellular level, though, everything was wrong. The biochemical processes with which she was so intimately familiar had been replaced by something... else... For an egoist of her power, it was like waking up to find that her brain had been transplanted into an automaton. Everything looked right, but it was only a simulation, a mockery of the real thing. A mockery of life. Great maker. The events of Saturday night came rushing back. What day is it? Not important. She remembered the desperate fight on the subway car, and the even more desperate flight through the tunnels. She had nearly made it, nearly reached safety. And then... Braddock. She reached up to her neck and found the remains of two puckered scars. Fear and dread rushed through her. She would have shivered had her body still been able to. She knew now what it was that she hungered for. She looked at the clock on the wall, an ornate assembly of brass and carved wood just after three o'clock. She peered behind the window shutters and saw darkness outside, so obviously that was three a.m. That would make it, what, two hours until sunrise? Three? The solstice had been on Friday, so it would be early. She knew that much. Call it two hours. Two hours to get away from wherever Braddock had taken her, to contact the Hive, to warn them of what had happened to her. And then, to end this. 
she opened one of the double doors and found herself on a balcony surrounding a high-ceilinged reception hall. Other doors lined the walls on all sides, while overhead a skylight showed the waxing moon. An elaborate spiral staircase descended to one corner of the room below. Miriam followed it down, then paused to take stock of her surroundings. Much like the bedroom, the furnishings in the reception hall spoke of wealth and refinement. Kellaware rugs, polished hardwood floors, and fine artwork on the walls all spoke of an owner who was accustomed to wealth and knew how to distinguish the valuable from the merely expensive. A grand piano sat in one corner of the room, a full-sized harp beside it. White marble statues of two women stood on either side of the front doors, their expressions hard and regal. The inscriptions at the base of the statues identified them as Mistress Lilith and Mistress Talia, the Daedra Lord who had created the vampires, and the queen who now ruled in her place. Miriam tried the door, but it was locked. She tried to force it, but it resisted even her considerable strength. Frustrated, she took a running start and slammed her shoulder against the door. It didn't budge. Somewhere overhead, a warning chime began to sound. A door opened a few meters down the hallway at the far end of the reception hall. The scent filled her nostrils a moment later. It was sweet and tangy, and it promised a satisfaction like nothing she had ever known. Her stomach nodded again, and she felt herself being drawn toward the scent, its power drawing her like a moth to a flame. Braddock was waiting at the entrance, a little smirk playing on the corner of his mouth. He nodded at the open door, a silent instruction to enter. Miriam couldn't have stayed outside in any case. The door led to a lounge, smaller than the reception hall, but still large enough to house two long couches and an enormous high-backed chair. Miriam was surprised to see that the room was not dark and shadowed, but white. White walls, white carpets, white light from the glow panels that covered the ceiling. Even the furniture was upholstered in white leather. In the midst of this blank canvas of a room, the eye was immediately and irresistibly drawn to him. He sat enthroned in the high-backed chair, dressed in a dark red smoking jacket of crushed velvet. He appeared to be in his early forties, with a strong jaw and sharp, distinguished features. His dark hair was graying at the temples, but with his commanding presence and regal bearing, it only made him look more dignified. His eyes were a subtle, faded green, but they drew her gaze and held it with unbreakable strength. Miriam was dimly aware of other people in the room. Six women, all dressed in white, each of a different race or species. Five of them sat at his feet, arrayed around his throne like obedient pets. One of them, a blonde Northlander, was nestled in the chair beside him, one leg draped over his lap. The woman's face was alight with a kind of delirious ecstasy. Blood oozed from two wounds in the side of her neck, its scent filling Miriam's nostrils. Her stomach pleaded with her to take the girl, to taste that blood for herself. But she could do nothing but stare at the man, the man whose eyes held her fast and devoured her will. 
he spoke. Ah, at last. He smiled without showing his teeth. Welcome to my home, Miriam Bakhtavar. I am Malcolm Advalos. He gestured at the woman beside him. I would be honored if you would join me for a drink. And that's the end of chapter 42. Come back next time when Malcolm reveals his plans for Miriam and presents her with a fateful gift. Neil Gaiman said, Life is a good thing for a writer. It's where we get our raw material for a start. We quite like to stop and watch it. So let's see what raw material I've gathered this week. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of September 4th through September 10th. I wrote 983 words this week, over the course of 1.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 655 words per hour. I wrote or worked on the podcast on 5 out of 7 days this week. Last weekend was the Labor Day holiday here in the U.S., and I took advantage of the extra downtime to get ahead on recording Making the Cut. I finished one episode on Saturday that I had started the previous week, recorded and finished an entire episode on Sunday, and then recorded the raw audio for two more chapters on Monday. Then I had to go back to the day job, and that put a quick stop to my progress for the week. I did a little bit of editing on Tuesday, but Wednesday and Thursday were both so busy at work that I basically just came home, ate dinner, and went to bed. On Friday, I wrote this script for the podcast, which is the only writing I got done all week. Then it was time for bed again. I'm not gonna lie, it's frustrating when work swallows my life like this. It reminds me uncomfortably of my time as a teacher, when I was perpetually short on sleep and creatively drained. I have to remind myself, though, that it isn't always like this. We're just going through a rough patch right now, and I'm putting in extra hours because my team needs my expertise. And it's pretty cool to be at a place in my life where I'm not just good at my job, I'm the one whom others are looking to for leadership. After so many years of flailing along, feeling like I was just holding my head above water, I don't feel that way anymore. I'm good at this. I like what I do. I'm helping people deliver medicines that save lives. And maybe two or three times a year, I have to spend a few weeks working my ass off. I can live with that. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. Then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. 
Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.